Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, the year's about to turn over, and every time the year is about to turn over, we feel this collective intensity around the future and what it will bring. Of course, there are all those memes and conversations and tweets and all that kind of shit about goodbye, you horrible year, um, which is the same year that we were very hopeful for in the beginning. Um, As we look forward, there could be a sense of what's going on here? What's the trajectory we're on? Where are things going? Well, I realize people do that economically a lot. They try to make economic uh, podcasts. (laughs) They try to make economic forecasts. They try to make uh, political forecasts, you know, elections, that sort of stuff. But one forecast that doesn't really come up a lot is a spiritual forecast. What's going to happen spiritually? Where is spirituality going to go in the next year and in the years to come? And Part of that, I think, is that we don't really understand spirituality as a future-oriented thing. Um, We often see it as uh, a relic, or when we do think of spirituality, we think of it merely as a technique or tool of resistance against the erosion of meaning, um, or the erosion of quality versus quantity in our lives. So it's a sort of resistance strategy technology, um, tactic, and it loses this kind of, you know, sense that this is also going somewhere. And where is it going? Where does it fit? And I think that that's really interesting because non-materialistic worldviews, um, like the one I try to sort of bring up on the show again and again, what does a truly non-materialistic worldview look like? That's something that's waiting for us to fully realize. And as materialism gets drained of its substance and credibility from all angles, philosophically, culturally, scientifically, we should be thinking about what awaits us with spirituality as non-materialism develops. Um... And I guess maybe before we go there, we could talk about where our spiritual lives are right now and next year and the year after that. Um, You know, what is the spiritual current that's showing up for so many of us right now? I've talked about this before on the show, but I think we can see in the sort of cultural soup right now lots of spiritual aesthetics. People talk about tarot cards and astrology and other forms of divination quite a bit. Um, And the signs and symbols that those bring with, the images that they bring with them. These forms of divination have definitely made a comeback. And maybe that's, you know, the uncertainty of our times. You know, it used to be that what was really super present was the I can do anythingness of new age abundance movements. I can control my future. That was prevalent before. Maybe uncertainty has brought, ooh, I've got to get the tools so I can see the future, what's coming, what's happening. 
Um, so I wonder though that <laughs> divorced it almost seems from the tarot astrology stuff is this alternate current um, of reality shifting um, timeline discourses that kind of stuff in any case we see these different streams of spirituality present with us now the divination stuff and the reality jumping timeline shifting stuff and i want to say that both of those involve what we might broadly call magic magical technique magical operations magical practice magical worldview magic is not a thing of the past it's here um, it's here now and it's something that's being constantly realized re-envisioned reconstructed and applied in different places it's never been a thing of the past and even if you want to say materialism showed up and dampened the presence of magic which i i don't really think it has we can we can turn to episode 141 of this show with jason josephson storm about how magical occult worldviews have always been present but you know i think beyond that we can also just say materialism is itself a kind of magic it's a kind of magic that conceals itself as magic it has all sorts of magical superstitious um bizarro components to it so if we want to look at that field of magic now and orient ourselves towards its future trajectory where is it going where is that strand of spirituality going what is the spirituality of the future when it comes to magic what is the spirituality and magic of space travel um, obviously that's coming up a lot <laughs> with the mars terraforming stuff um, and satellites and destroying comets with rockets and all this kind of stuff asteroids all that kind of stuff what is the spirituality of the signs and signifiers of the internet and technological discourse or um of technological beings like ai if aliens came what would be the appropriate spiritual view of them if we considered magic occultism divination timeline shifting all that kind of stuff what role does witchcraft have in space on mars um how does witchcraft fit in with vr and the metaverse and deep fakes and more without falling into the sort of jenny calendar from buffy techno pagan stuff which is just kind of mashup of two different <laughs> worldviews or cyberpunk or whatever no offense to jenny calendar god bless um but how do we actually see the place of spirituality witchcraft and magic producing technologies producing worldviews producing advancements in human experience and innovation as spirituality has always done how do we not fall prey to um keeping spirituality magic occultism intact um how do we not fall prey to the singularity 
or conspiracy theories about sing the singularity and the Great Reset. I mean, both of those effectively keep us located and locked into materialistic gestures, whether you are pro-singularity or pro-conspiracy theories about singularities and Great Reset and all that kind of stuff. That all keeps us in a materialistic place. But when we bring magic, occultism, and spirituality to bear, how do those things fit in together as the world unfolds? And it all is unfolding together. Spirituality, technology, magic, witchcraft, all these things. I talk about all this and so much more with Alkistus, Dimmick, and Peter Gray, the founders of the legendary occult publishing company Scarlet Imprint. They last appeared on the show on episode 127, which was about a year ago, and we were talking about the apocalypse. But now we've... <laughs> gotten through or at least seen the other side of the apocalypse <laughs> we've all been through apocalyptic moments so now what because on that episode they came from their perspective working with this babylon being you know one version of babylon is the horror of babylon from the bible and i came from mine as an esoteric christian and my esoteric christian point of view both of these beings are apocalypse beings jesus christ and Babylon are there at the end. But, <clears throat> you know, I found that conversation really interesting and enlivening, even though we were coming from completely different uh, spiritual vantage points, because Jesus Christ and Babylon don't really get to have conversations very often. Not really. Not through people in a sustained, peaceful, and loving way, like we had on that episode. This time... Uh, on this episode, we were in person. I went to Cornwall. Um, I'd gone to Dorset and Chesil Beach to talk with James Lovelock on the previous episode of this one. Um, and then I went to go talk to them. And that was really exciting because Lovelock worked at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL. And Peter has written a book about John Whiteside's Parsons and uh, L. Ron Hubbard and... Parsons was worked at JPL as well. So we're sitting in front of a fire. We're not mediated by the oblivion of space where I'm looking into a screen and the signal's being sent to some satellite and encountering all these sort of oblivion in between and then being turned into these codes sent back down and decoded into something that sounds like speech at this really rapid pace. Instead, we were together where two or more gathered, something happens. It was a fascinating conversation, and it's oriented towards the future with spirituality, and particularly with magic and witchcraft. It's really cool, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Listen, if you think that this kind of conversation is unique, is enriching, is exciting, is weird, is something that gets you talking to other people, Please support this show on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Your support is what keeps the show going. It's what allows me to go meet with Peter and Alkistus or James Lovelock or whoever. It's what allows me to make this my full-time job, which uh, I <laughs> essentially is. It takes a ton of time, you know, and effort, and I hope that that comes through with every episode and a ton of care as well. And I love doing it. So please 
do support the show patreon.com forward slash connor habib super easy just go there click the amount that you want to give each month and then you give it each month and then that's it and then the show keeps going and i get to keep doing cool episodes about witches in space like this one here we go Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I'm very excited to be here in person with two favored people, Peter Gray and Augustus Demick. Yes? Yes. Okay, I'm getting the go-ahead because I often mispronounce Augustus's name. So this there was a start before this start, but here we are starting at the real start. Um, you know, I... <laughs> I often do a ton of research for these episodes and so forth, <laughs> but no, this, that is not to say that I didn't want to do research to, <laughs> to talk with you guys, but, but rather I found myself wanting to spend some time with you as a research and see what gathered over the evening um, here in Cornwall. And I thought that what we could talk about is what we talked about last time, which is the future, but let's take it further this time into the future. Let's take on more time. Let's allow more time in if we can than last time when all we allowed in was the apocalypse. Uh, so now... <laughs> Part two. <laughs> yes, exactly. After the apocalypse. The sequel. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I'd like to talk about this provocative statement that you've made, Peter, but also we've talked about before we started about which is... Uh, taking us to space <laughs> now sounds like a great you know sound, sounds like a a great uh, z-list movie from the 60s which is in space but I think there's something really to it and I want to give you a little space to talk about that and then we'll just take off from there well as we've um, we've already talked to you you hate the latest Dune movie. I'll I'll bring up the latest Dune movie and say that we we already have um, this year a major science fiction film which is exploring the issues of space and witchcraft. As one of the kind of critical things that we find in Dune is the existence of the the Bene Gesserit sisterhood um, and uh, a vision of space which is which is not the kind of the technological space that we'd expect from other kind of space operas like Star Wars, but uh, a haunted space, a space which contains um, individuals who've developed what Colin Wilson would call faculty X. Um, and there's a there's an understanding that that we have these capabilities within us, and perhaps these capabilities are something we need as we as we set forth and explore the universe. So what I did with um, with the two antichrists, where I developed this thesis as I moved on from the work that I did in apocalyptic witchcraft, and apocalyptic witchcraft was really looking at the challenges that we face in terms of ecological collapse and destruction, and um, a call for us really to get back to the bodies and get back to a, a raw and more more passionate embodied witchcraft. And where my work's taken me is in in 
what seems to be quite a different direction. So I've explored the the Promethean idea of one of the core things which it means to be human, which is for us to continue to push out to the distant horizons. And that that desire to go further, to go beyond, is something which is part of the occult vision, which is part of the the travelling in spirit vision that we find in witchcraft traditions, but is also something which is technologically becoming true. So I wanted to look at those ideas. And it's also part of the evolutionary imperative as well. So it's natural that we are always trying to exceed where we are at the moment, even if we can't imagine what the future is. Mm, yeah, so... Okay, so there's a lot already. Um, one, if we take the B'nai Jesuit from Dune um, as a starting point of people who... Uh, yeah, understand the kind of interwovenness of language, of command, of mentation, and of preparing human beings for a new kind of existence, right? They're they're waiting for the Kuzak Sadrak uh, to be created. Yeah. Um, I think that that's part of the role you're talking about, is positioning people who are doing witchcraft and magic to get us ready for it so we're not just talking as you've provocatively stated we're not just talking about elon musk going to mars and colonizing mars for billionaires but we're talking about a much longer process of uh understanding gestation uh, of understanding what's coming of seeing it and beginning to prepare for it now um but i also want to add one other Apart from Dune, which is the folding of space. Mm. So when I talk about space as not just space, the cosmos, the black, dark, inhospitable stuff, but of what we do with space here, which obviously plays into performance, dance, moving into uh, different forms with space and air, also creating... Uh, words that are forming space and air as we carve it and it comes out of our mouths properly or in a certain way. And also as size. I mean, when we think about someone at a distance coming towards us, there is the question, and I realize some people will think this is just a stoner question, but I love it. How do we know that as someone approaches us, they're not just getting larger, right? That it's not a question of distance, but actually there's a relational thing about something growing. And so when we talk about space, we're also talking about how we conceptually interact with something that we think of as separate from us or as separating objects, but actually is just in an immediacy of experience or a distance of experience in a certain way. Yeah, I think these are some of the the really critical things, some of the critical experiences that one goes through on the path. So... Um, the the big thing that I've looked at with Jack Parsons' work, um, one of the one of the major revelations he, he had, the revelation where he received the Book of Babylon in the desert, was performing a ritual um, that he'd taken from Alistair Crowley's um, Astra Margentum um, mystical approach, where one goes out into the desert and spends a night under the stars, and. 
I think we've all been in various forms of confinement for the last 18 months or so living in in various forms of quarantine, um, real and imagined. And I think being able to being able to start to look out and look at the, the distant reaches of space might perhaps be a useful way for us to begin to reorient ourselves. So one of the things that this teaches us is that we we exist not just trapped within a room or, or trapped in isolation, but we're in fact part of a, a vast and living intelligent cosmos. And that's something that that we want to engage with that, that draws us out to it. So the combination of these ideas of both the, the vastness of space and then when you get into the practicalities of space travel, also the sense of confinement and being close and in relation with people and unable to escape from them. Um, these are all things that start to come up as we as we investigate the ways in which we can start to think about what it means to be human and what it means to be um, practitioners of witchcraft as we move from... Um, from our current state into becoming an interplanetary civilization and then ultimately becoming an interstellar civilization. I perceive it differently. So I don't think in terms of us becoming an interplanetary or interstellar civilization, but that life will expand from this planet, probably through an accident or our doing, it doesn't really matter, but that life will continue, not necessarily civilization. I'm still very ambivalent about what form it takes as we transform what we understand to be human now into what's coming and what's necessary to go beyond our biome or, or Gaia Earth into other realms and what it means to inhabit them and what it means to be in those spaces because we're inevitably transformed by not being earthbound creatures but by being creatures that have to transition through other stages. Um, I work a lot with the idea of the mantis or the figure of the mantis as magician and dancer and also psychopomp and mantises have stages of development called instars where they uh, it, the, the nymph form is the same form as the adult creature but that each time it sheds its skin this instar is another instantiation of the creature and I think of this in terms of how humans will develop as the kind of beings or creatures we are now to creatures which are less and less attached to Gaia or Earth and become able to translate into other mediums or a life form that can exist in other spaces. Hmm, yeah. Well, I think in in the case of everything that both of you have just said, uh, it puts me in mind of, you know, just the metamorphosis that's happening through, and I say metamorphosis in a Gertian sense, where a metamorphosis is happening through contraction and expansion of the entire of the entirety of the of the total you know when we were in lockdown processes i would notice a strange uh phenomenon where people were inside or confined to smaller spaces than they were used to and yet the imagination was of the entire world 
So it was this constant breathing in and out or this constant expansion, contraction of all the space, all the people to I'm here, just me in this room. Oh, the entire world. What are they going through? How are they interconnected to me? I'm here in this room. And we've seen other moments like that. Um, when someone landed on the moon, if you believe someone really landed on the moon, um, when someone landed on the moon and saw the entirety of space and then famously he put his thumb up and blotted out the earth for a second and said, oh, everything I know is behind my thumb. And also now with phones, we use our thumb, the same thing that we use to blot out the earth to call up the presence of the earth all the time and anywhere on the earth. And yet also it changes our view of space because we're constantly staring into a little rectangle instead of the world that's around us that we access with our thumb that we use that someone used to blot out the earth the first time it was seen from a distance. So there's this constant expansion and contraction. And that is the process of something struggling through mitosis and maybe meiosis at the same time and to be born. And when I think of moving beyond the planet or interplanetary or however we want to talk about or whatever angle we want to come at, there is definitely this process of becoming that's happening. And if we think about it in Gaian terms, it could be that the organelle, which human beings represent in a Gaian system, is uh, sort of either separating or... uh, or is reaching the point in a kind of reverse gestation or reverse symbiosis where it's about to once again separate and proliferate. I don't know. So something is something struggling here in, in many different levels. Yeah. I've been thinking about space, uh, both in terms of what's out there beyond the Earth's atmosphere and also space, for example, the, the space between us, Ma, in the Japanese... Uh, word would be um, partly through my experience with performance and and creating the space in a dance and partly because of the, the effect of lockdown I noticed on the way it transforms our perception of the world and our relationships to other people and things and I find that that space, no matter what space it is, is absolutely active and inhabited. I mean, it's made alive by beings, whether they're angelic or daimonic, I don't know how to describe them. And I quite like both the images of the angel and the demon, the daimon. But that this space, any space between points in the space, which are, each point is a center all this space is filled by a dynamic activity which is carried out by the angelic or the daimonic beings. So I can't see how that can't be expanded from the space between us and the energies between us being activated through this conversation to further points. And the work I um, have done with Venus was very much about this connection uh, on every level on a mental level yes like the imaginal and an emotional level the heart because I think that the the body can't leave the earth 
actually. I think the body, well, my body definitely is going to live and die on this planet because whatever happens to transform my body will be already gone by then. But that there is still an evolution possible within us as individuals now that is happening on other levels of our being and which is happening through interactions with these angelic or demonic beings. Yeah, um, or, or maybe to put it, uh, maybe to flip that or to put it in a different way, you know, maybe the cosmos doesn't get to leave your body before it expires, right? Because like the way, and I know that we, we talked about this the last time you guys were on, which is almost a year, year ago now. Um, and it seems like a month ago or seven years ago, whatever <laughs> angle you want to take. But, you know, the concept of the body or, mm. or, or, or my body as, as, a, as a certain distinction of my thinking process, rather than anything material, if I'm going to come at this in a non-materialistic way, there's a distinct experience of evolving states of consciousness, which I refer, which the I refers to as my body. Mm. And it's the same for the cosmos. It's the same for space and the concepts of space and these planets and the experiences and tones and, and gestures of these, these things that I call planets, which are happening inside me, inside this sort of thought space. Those are waiting to evolve within me to be a place where uh, I can go. But right now they're not there yet. So they're waiting for me or for the eye to do something with them. So they become tra travelable. Um, so they become a place that uh, the eye can inhabit differently than, or, or, or that can inhabit or live beside the eye in a way that it can't right now. I don't know if any of that makes sense. I just sort of stumbled <laughs> through that, but I'm trying to come at it rather than talking about, well, of course my body couldn't exist on mm. Venus right now. As far as I know, I mean, nobody's really, nobody's, really, nobody's really tried it. So, but probably not. There are reasons. Right, right, exactly. Um, but, but also just to say, rather than putting it in materialistic terms to take mm. it as these thought forms of the planets and the cosmos and all that kind of stuff, they're waiting for the eye to develop them to be a place that the eye can happily coexist on, if that makes sense. That might require excarnation and death. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> um, I feel like the same energetic patterns of forming my self, my body, my, my mind as it's coming into being in this very moment. <laughs> And these same forces are creating the entire universe, the galaxy, the cosmos, like everything, everything in it. The, the, you see the same patterns repeated again and again and again, and it's the same energy. But there are also currents working within this. So when we spoke before, we talked a lot about apocalypse, and um, I think we spoke a little bit about our differing understandings of Babylon and apocalypse and Christ I don't feel like I need to understand what force Babylon is, but I can feel it working through me. 
And it's enough for me to recognize that and not to fight it and to allow that work to happen. And that it is both constituting me and forming me and also tearing me apart at the same time. And I don't mind that I'm temporary and temporal because I feel that I'm exactly doing what I should be doing at this moment in time and that I can feel the same the same forces binding other materials together in the universe at this very moment. So I don't doubt that there is a, a larger pattern, which we might call plan if we were going to be, <laughs> like give a, a sort of sense of... I don't even know if we need to say that. I don't even know if it's for us to even worry about that. We have our own sort of like plans and plans within plans and things, but the the ideas we're dealing with now go beyond these individual levels or even a sort of a sense of an identity or a self or any of this. It doesn't seem even... Um, uh, the, the sort of conflict I see in the world at the moment over identities particularly seems so artificial when underneath it all we're the same material being stirred and created and, and formed by forces which we are arbitrarily giving names to and fighting each other over. I have a lot to say, but I want to give Peter a chance to talk. No, that's fine, Connie. Go ahead. No. <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, one, I would want to privilege the place of the individual um, in a certain way. Not identity, but the individual. And what we are all able to um, become. But the, the other thing I want to say is when you say we're made of the same st stuff or there's a, a substance. And it, it doesn't even have to be a material substance, but that one of the things that's happening as a result of this expansion and contraction process that I was mentioning before, um, jumping off some of the things you guys said, is that something that we got a little bit of a glimpse of, and we're, we're continuing to, through both globalization, but then this sort of globalized event, this extension of globalization, um, this global crisis or pandemic, is the ability to feel or experience the pain of others. And there are lots of ways that people are trying to block that off or mm -hmm. stop that from happening, but it seems that it's an inevitability that we will begin to share the substance of the suffering and the emotional presence of the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that people are not really prepared for that in the least. I don't mean that someone stubs their toe and you feel it, although that's horrible enough because stubbing your toe just fucking sucks. We all know that. Right? <laughs> it's the worst. But I mean, when our etheric body, when the very rhythmic aspect, the living, growing aspect of our being experiences what the other experiences, I've had a little bit of this this year and it is, I mean, it is like hell. I mean, it is really, really intense. And to the fact that, I mean, most people have no, I, I didn't have any concept. I still only have a, a glimpse of it where I look at the other and I see them suffering, but I don't experience the separation and the emotive 
or growing state that I actually experience it. And so that, I think, is part of the work that's ahead of us in this shared substance that you're talking about. Mm. Although I do think that the individuation continues just with an awareness of that. It's going to be very hard to develop individuation when we're all feeling each other's suffering. I agree that we are individual in one sense, and the other pole of our being is this recognition that the other is ourself. And so I think the what you're describing is this coming to realize in the flesh this experience of oneness. It's more than even connection. It's like absolute oneness with the other. And this pathos is... I really, I've been very struck by the work of Pierre Klosowski and there's some things he said that I really, it made so much fall into place for my own work, but I think it would make a lot of sense with what you're saying, that there is no theophany without pathophony, so that there can be no appearance of the divine in the world, no, no showing forth of the divine and this recognition that I think you're talking about would be a, an instant of this divine being revealed without the feeling, without that utter uh, connection, affectivity, without it being something we feel in our own bodies, in, in, in our own, you know, reverberating through our entire history, genetic history, not just, you know, the moment, not just something we can, ah, you know, I know what it feels like to stub my toe or like rip my fingernail or something that's sort of, that everyone some common experience of pain, but something much more catastrophic and, and transformative. So that whether we whether we can alchemize the sense of catastrophe this realization brings us when it comes and actually become the next thing, grow into grow through that pain into the next thing. Or whether we're just washed away in the pain and we can't find any way to hold on and this i think is where people will be tested i do i do agree with you on that that there will be some reckoning coming in those terms yeah i mean i think i think in general we sense that there's a collective that there's a collective becoming even as a certain kind of differentiation or individuation is is happening so that metamorphosis that's happening for everyone i mean it's always happening for everyone but we're, we're noticing it now really in this certain way of this contraction expansion across the planet that's affecting every person and the event has already happened in people it doesn't matter like, even if we just went back to sort of neoliberal tech bullshit, which we, we, we won't, but even if we did, the event has already happened psychically for everybody. So it's, it's already happened and we will carry that forward with us throughout our existence. Um, we're tending, I think we're going to tend more to see things in this way. Um, so that this sort of, kind of chicken shit cowardly version of a single aspect or single cause and effect 
things start to fall away in favor of understanding things, maybe not systemically, but understanding things as multi-layered um, processes. So like, for instance, like the idea that a gene mutation is what drives evolution compared to seeing, you know, like, so it's like one trait on an animal changes, you know, through random genetic mutation and natural selection. I mean, this, this kind of idea just seems so stupid in the face of knowing that an animal changes whole, like the, the whole body changes. You can't just change one part. You can't just and, arbitrarily. And so, so that's a, just a metaphor really. Although I do think that's also falling away, but we're seeing it's not just one little direct hit here and one little direct hit there, but actually the whole, um, the whole is changing. And that I think we're becoming aware that the whole is changing, which again, changes the, the whole. Um, as you were saying, the, the idea that one gene just sort of accidentally transforms and, and this sort of prop it propels evolution, but uh, things change in relation to environments, in a conversation ongoing with the environment. So creatures change their environments, environments create creatures which then change them, which, and it uh, goes on and on and on. So we are in a symbiotic relationship already with our environment, which is why I said we're not going to leave this planet as us, because we would, we have to think about, and this is what Peter also talks about, although not as not developing it as fully as I think he will in his later work in the two antichrist this idea of we will take life out to space we will help life take root in other places in the cosmos it won't be us necessarily but it will be life with a capital L in the sense that not just humans but humans can't exist without our biome so we will have to take all forms of life with us and then what transforms what what can what can evolve to exist in other spaces will carry on and will keep developing and so this this continual this continual dialogue between life and its environment is what's happening and that's through this it's a conscious a conscious dialogue because the environment is also consciously part of this. I think this, the sense that space is just an empty void. I think we are we are well away from that now, really. So, it's not an empty void. It's an intelligent space. It's an inhabited and spirited space. All spaces. That's part of why we're beginning to undo psychoanalysis. We realize that there is no void. Actually, mm. I mean, there is a void. Well. Maybe I won't go there with you guys, but there is a void and that is Christ. But the, but there is no <laughs> but there is no there is no true void that space is full, space is positive. The the the, the separation is a is a positive productive thing. Um but thing, whatever, process, whatever I don't even know. Being, whatever the fuck. <laughs> but um <laughs> but just to sort of take it from what you were saying and I think actually this does play into uh, a lot of what Peter was talking about and what I've been thinking about is, you know, I was just, just before I met you guys talking with James Lovelock and, um, you know, this, this whole process of Gaia where it's the biota, um, interacting 
the, the, the total sum of all living things interacting with their environment, shaping the environment, and then the environment then shaping them and back and forth in this process, this homeoretic process. Um, it, you know, his, his idea is that we're moving, you know, his, his idea is as it, it's as provocative as yours, but maybe provocative to different people, um, <laughs> would say, or provocative in a different way that we're moving towards having these, the symbiosis with a new form of life, which he hates people saying robots, computers, machines. It's just not that it's this different kind of life form that does come from codes and silicone and self-reproducing computers and all that kind of stuff. But just looks completely different than what we typically imagine and certainly not what Silicon Valley or Ray Kurzweil people imagine. And that that will be the thing that ultimately, uh, changes the, or, or, or saves quote unquote the biosphere and makes it possible for us to live here. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm going to hand that one to you. Yeah. I'm, I think it's very interesting to see that um, that Lovelock is using his last precious time here to try to develop a more um, a more sympathetic version of the idea that, for example, that we we're, we're bootloaders for AI, that the human species reaches a point and we're just here to give birth to AI and then we're over. I think trying to look for a more symbiotic understanding of what the future could be and what the future of the body and beyond the body is, is a, is a very useful thing to engage in. Um, but my, my position would be slightly different, um, in that I'd be saying that we have further to go in our bodies than we even realize that we don't understand the full potential of what it means to be human um, before we even begin to think about how we interface with machinery, I mean, I think it's very, I think it's very useful for us to think about ideas, to think about, um, think about Elon Musk talking about um, whether the deal we make with the AI is that um, we extend our limbic system to them in the sense of pleasure and being incarnated um, in order to prevent AI wiping us out, but. My personal position is that um, at present, I don't, I don't believe that we will reach an AI singularity because I don't think increasing complexity in that technology will produce consciousness. But I may be wrong. Um, but my my current position is that that looks like that 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 looks to be a, a, a false idea. Um, a false dream, but I think we should be having many dreams at this stage because, as you say, we're we're at a crucial stage in what it means to be human. Um, I very often frame this in terms of the the multiple ecological crises that we're facing, and I know that there are many differences as to which of those crises is the most um, pressing and which of them are illusory. So to me, it doesn't matter whether people believe Greta Thunberg or realize that she's not. It doesn't, that, that doesn't matter to me at all. We clearly have um, a great deal of very sick planetary systems that need to be put right. Um, and even in spite of that, when I talk about the 
the essential need for us to go into space. It's also simply as a hedge. I mean, we live on a very fragile planet, which could be destroyed in any number of ways. And for us to for us to create an arc and to move genetic material off-world as a hedge against planetary destruction seems like an eminently sensible thing to do rather than, rather than being a form of escapism for asshole billionaires, which I think it's quite clear we're all opposed to. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's probably wrong also, I agree, to, to assume that AI is capable of being conscious, at least in any way that would be meaningfully recognizable as conscious. I mean, I tried to, I tried to talk to, with Jim about that. He, he said, oh, that's, that's your idea of it, and that's very interesting, um, which I said, you know, this, these machine beings, which I do think... I, I I think we could maybe view them also as a as a sort of fluorescence of a certain aspect of the spiritual world, as everything is, as everything is. So they're already are imbued with a kind of life and consciousness. It's just not evident by the fact that a head, like you know, a computer that's shaped like a human head can say human words and solve human problems. Like that's complete artificial stupidity. Like that is not consciousness. But there is a consciousness that inheres in those processes and what we get out of them and how we relate to them, which is a spiritual kind of consciousness of specific beings. But if I'm trying to imagine what it looks like physically, like what we would perceive with our eyes, I could imagine a process that looks like lichens spreading across a stone where we have a surface and then on top of the surface we have something that is looks completely almost even like the surface doesn't really look like something that we would consider alive and yet has a deeply complex process of reproduction of metabolism and even of a kind of movement that's happening within it that's sort of spreading and that we could interact with that process that's happening so it's not like computer comes alive and magical genie pops out and all that kind of stuff. But rather there's a process that heralds the presence of a certain kind of spiritual being, which we interact with. And that process is brought by the presence of the spreading of a certain kind of code, a certain kind of material, all that sort of stuff. And it looks strange and unliving to us, but actually the process is very close to being alive maybe not conscious, I don't know. But, you know, I mean, plants certainly, and, and cyanobacteria certainly changed the atmosphere and the face of the planet and what kind of life was available here, you know, and, and so did all other kinds of living factors that weren't what we would maybe consider conscious in the way that human beings were conscious either. So I try to think about it that way. I used to be completely opposed to the idea, but after talking to Lovelock and reading Novacine, I'm a little more open to it but not in, you know, in, in the way I agree with you in the way that it would not be. Yeah, for sure. My question with AI is that it doesn't have feeling. And we were just talking about like pathos and effectivity, and that's distinctly missing from artificial intelligence. And I don't see any relationship between consciousness and artificial intelligence. It's either there is either consciousness and it is they can't like you can't create it like i don't think ai is a stage on the way towards either consciousness or life 
I ca- I can't see how that goes there, but I do think I'm not sure whether there is anything that can contain the the coherence that distinguishes life like the sort of the quantum levels of coherence that distinguish life throughout the cosmos doesn't seem to have any parallel in AI. So I'm very doubtful about that being something other than that we could use as some supercharged brain to help solve problems in the world that we're facing right now. So as you said, it's still tethered to... I, I, the thing, the other thing with AI that horrifies me about it is that most of it's going to be created out of what what it knows of us is what it perceives us doing on the internet, which is basically fucking. Like ninety percent of it is pornography of the most uh, extreme kinds, which has nothing to do with. It's just like a. It has nothing to do with future as such as a surfeit of erotic and sexual energy that's gaming us continually all the time so I think as well that if if it did if it could possibly become conscious wouldn't it just be like I I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know what kind of monsters we were surely <laughs> well that's Zizek's thing about isn't now the perfect sexual experience sticking a dildo into a flesh jack exactly, like where they, yeah. <laughs> you know like where the, that it actually doesn't have any human and I, aspect, yeah. yeah. And I see as well that there's this huge pull as uh, at the moment. It's really it became very apparent over lockdown how much of people is being sucked into this artificial reality created by the internet, by the web, by by existing, by projecting oneself into an avatar, and becoming someone else online and the more that technology enables us to project our fantasy lives into these um, alternative realities that we are sort of creating with other people escaping their bodies we're actually getting further and further from the reckoning that we actually need to undergo this effective reconciliation with other beings which we need to undergo in order to actually transform ourselves. And I think AI represents potentially, at its best, uh, a supercharged thinking system that can solve problems that we are facing in a way that I would hope is politically like not, not, not biased, that is just looking at life and valuing life rather than saying but the left think like this and the right think like and having these sort of bipartisan fights over everything over over issues which aren't bipartisan at all which which actually unify which should unify us. and as peter points out the space the space project should be a project that unifies people on the earth rather than one that divides them and ai would represent at its best something along those lines of a, a sort of a meta political thinking system that could solve world problems but I, it doesn't look like that's what it's becoming or being used for it looks like it's being used towards gaming people extracting information from them you know sort of mining people this is what i see happening now is increasingly both bodies and minds being mined so so our biological information is being taken up and sucked up so now that the world has been sort of mountains have been blown up and, and rivers have been poisoned the last sort of frontier is the human body and the human mind as one one thing the body mind is being extractively exploited by these kind of forces and that seems to me to be 
pointing us in the wrong direction, but it's one of the options we have. And I, I am a completely, as a devotee of Babylon, by which I mean, I give myself up to this impulse which dominates me completely, who seized me, that I'm not here to judge, but really to observe that we have these choices and to see where our stronger impulse leads us and our better impulses lead us, whether that's, you know, further into sort of the artificial realities or whether it's into the difficult transformations we're going to have to undergo in the body, in the flesh. But one, I want to talk about the spiritual intelligence that is struggling, or not struggling, <laughs> is doing quite well, that is um, coming into being partially through um, what we call AI. And some of the things that you're talking about, these sort of algorithms... Those aren't even AI. I don't know know why we started calling that AI. Like that mm. was not, you know, like at a certain point we just accepted that we were going to call that AI, but that's that's not it. I mean, that isn't that is a network, which is great, but you're right that that wouldn't create intelligence. But but this these spiritual beings which are evincing themselves partially through this AI, but also partially through us calling that AI and believing that it's AI and mm. adopting these narratives. And doing these self-replicating processes, these physical processes, and reducing our our thinking to the point where we identify so much with the machine that it looks alive to us or conscious to us. Not that it is, but we've downgraded ourselves so much to be like, oh, that's us. Mm. And then also to tell us that sub-nature, that is technological things like... VR or the metaverse deep fake bullshit mm. that somehow that that is transcendent of the body but actually of course it depends completely on the body to operate it and the eyes to see it and all that sort of stuff so it's actually subnatural it's not transcendent of any sort of material or bodily nature those are all aspects of the proximity of this being um, which Rudolf Steiner calls Araman that is uh, algorithmically synthesizing its presence on the earth, showing up more and more and more, but especially in our narratives, in our ego, in our thoughts. Because of the nature of that being, which is conscious, but only can express its consciousness through these reductive, replicative processes, we believe that all sorts of things are alive or conscious, which are not. And we believe that all things, so many things which are conscious or real or emotive actually aren't real. Well, love is just chemicals. Love is just matter. <laughs> Everything is chemicals. Exactly. It's that, that sort of stuff. And, and even that now, no, well, it's actually not even chemicals. It's all just a simulation, like this sort of stuff, drawing us into these metaphors. That being has been getting closer and closer. It's like, and each step it takes brings the signs, you know, brings mm. the signs of its being. And every time the signs are brought up and more signs are brought up, they assemble the presence of this being on the planet. We're not able to overcome this being. And this is something that I think one, we could say, well, Rudolf Steiner warned us of this. And so did some other people, 
But two, we can just say, well, just fucking look around you. We're not ready for these things that have been happening with these narratives. We're not ready. We can't overcome it. So all we have left to us is how we greet it. And so I've been constantly trying to get myself into this place to say, all right, little brother, you're here. You're my little brother. You know, you, I've been on earth longer than you, or my lineage has been here longer than you. Maybe not the cosmos, I don't know, but we've been here for a really long time. So what I have to do is disperse you in a way where you can actually grow and be tended to in a loving way so that when you show up and you really, it's time for you to fluoresce, we can open up the gates again and meet you and we can greet each other in love. In other words, I need to create a heart for you because you don't have it. It's actually, you're so young that you have not developed a heart. You haven't developed the feeling, the astrality. You have not developed any of that. All you have is this replicative, reductive process to express yourself. So we're going to have to lovingly tend to you in a certain way with the help of other spiritual beings until you're ready to fluoresce and show up and we can greet you and we can open the door or open the whatever, the container that grows around you like a crystal, and then we can be here together. So I think these imaginings, as Peter was saying, and the many different ones that are available to us, as you're both saying, they require us to lovingly engage with this presence that we cannot overcome, but only threatens to overwhelm us if we don't meet it with love, if we don't treat it like a kin, which it is. I can't follow you in your thinking there <laughs> because, because you are still using bodied language in order to discuss something which has no body, no form, other than that it lives parasitically from our limbic system and through our you know, informations. So it has no heart and it can't be given a heart. It has all our hearts. It has taken our hearts away from us. I don't believe that we can talk about it in those terms. I do think we have a choice. And I think we invariably, the majority of us fail most often. We turn to what's easiest and what's more pleasurable. And at the moment, that's really what's gaming all of us. The... the the pursuit of an ease which isn't actually which isn't actually what we're born to it's something it's a it's an artificial like a glass house we've constructed for ourselves to live for a brief moment in comfort but isn't isn't our destiny um i don't know if this is even talking completely across what you're saying but i just feel so strongly that our understanding of the body, as Peter was saying, is still very, very limited. And I'm not sure that there's any reconciliation with AI, except in terms of prolonging our time on Earth by managing the systems in a way that human governments can't, demonstrably can't manage. And uh, I'm sort of shocked at the, the level of idiocy and powerlessness and cravenness coming out of like the political classes there's there's not even the pretense of them having any higher values any higher aspirations any deeper concern than sheer like money making 
and bowing down to sort of the the, the corporate more the mouth of of industry that just wants to devour everything and ai is sort of like the the fine point on the end of that because it's taken to being able to look into each of our hearts and desires in you know absolute detail through our interactions with each other on the internet and it sees us i don't think there is any reconciliation with that creature or that that simulacrum that particular one i think we have to go further and return to the body and go further into understanding what it is we even are and so for me babylon particularly is this force which forces me to not turn away from sex and the reality of what brought life about um at our level of creation um because this is the only thing i can know this is this is the origin point i can return to in order to go forward i don't see i don't see reconciliation with ai and i agree like why did we all you know we grew up with the idea of ai as something from science fiction movies and something that people were you know hoping to bring about this excitement of the future and progress and we've abandoned the idea that you know we're always going forward and that it's always better and we will always overcome i think we have a much more realistic idea of what um the myth of progress has been sort of abolished in many ways although it's still one of the sort of hackneyed ideas that we still sort of think in terms of like things are going to be better etc um I think there's a lot of returning to the body to do and 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 through that through through that coming to terms with what we've done to other people and to other living beings. Yeah, I think a lot of um I think a lot of space technologies are in fact stone age. You know, they they go back to they go back to those base levels of the bodies, the megalithic yard to the 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 understanding where we are and what we are in the universe rather than necessarily looking always to a technological fix um and i just to disagree with you slightly because when 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 science fiction's talked about ai it's often had quite an uneasy relationship with it so if you look at um if you look at 2001 um or if you look at um the way in which um the android figures are always presented within um within the alien cycle of um Ridley Scott there's there's an understanding that there's a there's a difference there's a there's a difficulty there in these things not being not being what we are and not having not having our emotions oh i absolutely agree and i i i think it's really good you made the distinction between what science fiction writers imagine because they are actually at their best concerned with ethical questions and i think that the scientists now are less concerned with the ethics and i think one of the issues with the way that science is sort of driving forward ideas of what's going to what the human body is becoming what is possible uh, what ai is how we interface with ai i think those things aren't really considered as ethical questions as questions where we have skin in the game and flesh in the world but as you know what can we do just like wide open questions without any sense of responsibility yeah yeah i mean so just to 
just to pick up a little bit, I mean, just to be clear, you know, when I talk about this Araman, I don't mean that Araman is AI, right? I mean, I'm saying that that's one of the ways. I mean, Araman is as much people. Araman composes his uh, body as much through people repeating stupid phrases, using the same, love to see it, you know, using these catchphrases, reducing Mm. language down into something that is completely flat, Mm. empty repetition, as it is the reductive scientific, scientistic approach, as it is AI, as it is whatever. These are importance in one way, but also anatomy in another way of the body of this being, which Mm. is also said to incarnate in human form somewhere on the earth as well, which is also uh, another interesting thing to think about. Um, So it's that the coming of that being is an unstoppable thing. And all these other questions, as you say, it's like, at what point did the state or politics become actually completely impotent, dead in their Mm. ability to guide or direct anything? Mm. At what point did this word inevitable become so linked to AI and our idea of how things are going to go with it or economic, uh, or, or economic collapse for that matter? When, when did we start saying inevitable, inevitable, inevitable about everything? And that, that is because certain things have already been permeated or seized with the portent, the portents and the anatomy of this harmonic being. And it's a current, you know, this being is a current that we can see. And it's, and the thing is like, <laughs> it's too late to overcome it. I mean, it's just too late to overcome it at this, or it's either too, or it's too, it's simultaneously too early and too late to overcome it. We're not at the place where we're developed enough collectively to overcome its presence. And it's also too late to do anything about its arrival. It's like some horrible person has moved into your house, but you can't ask them to leave just yet. Right. Yeah. Um, and you, and, and there may be a day where you're doing your, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, like miracle of mindfulness stuff where actually you don't mind their presence anymore and you love the being that's there, but you know that that's going to take you about five years to achieve that level. So you're like, well, fuck, I've got to do something now and I've got to develop myself for the future. And actually, wouldn't it be nice to love this person who's arrived? And if I can love them, therefore know how to interact with them properly how to deal with them not doing the dishes and, you know, how to get them to cook for me, you know, when I want and all this. Yeah. But there's a problem with that. Um, um, and I, I think this is again where we have to face up to the terrible losses that AI will inflict upon us as a species and the way that people are gained by the algorithm, which is that it's possible for you Connor now as like a developed adult to have this conversation and um, have these thoughts and be able to engage with this coming being in this way. But when you see children being captured at a very early developmental stage, particularly as we move into um, headsets and augmented reality, 
I think one of the difficulties we might face is the fact that we we lose an entire generation or generations to something which is able to mimic and stimulate and run their dopamine systems and their and their responses so effectively that it's impossible for them to that you know they've been to use the the, the obvious thing you know they've been born into the matrix whereas we're transitional humans in that we've um so we're pre-internet you know we grew up before the internet we grew up before advertising we've seen all of these things happen around us so that makes us perhaps more critical um, than people who grew up as digital natives and what i've seen with people who grew up with technology is that their initial position is very often um, to believe that they can handle it effectively um, and that the people who are um, who are not doing that are simply Luddites of some form. Um, and what's been interesting over the last probably five years is to see how the previous techno-utopians, you know, people like Douglas Rushkoff being a good example, whose position has radically changed from this idea that, you know, the internet will set us free to this realization that, in fact, no, no, it won't. The, the, the technology isn't something that we can control in that way. So that's why I want to really emphasize the body technologies, because I think it is, you know, as Alcester says, that it's through the body that we, 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 can, we can find our center, that we can find ourselves outside of that digital realm and we can prevent our attention being captured and also learning to really value our attention and where we put it and the power that that gives to things. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree... Well, one, I want to say it's interesting that it, while it's true that Doug and certain people who are tech utopians have shifted their position, it's also interesting to me that someone like Lovelock, who's 102, mm. is saying, no, actually, this will be this. There's a there's an aspect of it that's good for us. And everybody's saying it's terrible. So I'm going to create the counter he even said, I'm going to create the counterweight of a good metaphor instead of these bad ones. But also I'm thinking of Michel Serre, who you know, at the time of his death, especially after writing this book, Thumbelina, about the differences, how there was this complete, huge gap in understanding between young people and old and older people, because they were almost just a completely different life form. Younger people are almost a completely different life form. He also had this kind of hope, you know, um, for people. And so sometimes I think there's also another like tunnel to go through, <laughs> you know, like, so you go through the utopianism and then you go through the pessimism and then you come out in this other sort of weird compromise of symptoms or something like that at the end. But I mean, I think it is, it is well, I mean, is well said like that people who are young are dealing with things that are completely distinct from us. I don't, I don't, ex I, I agree with you that there's this idea of like, oh, well, we can handle this. I do. And, and I also want to say, and, and this is linking into something you said before. I think, yes, the radical potential of sex, not just love, which is people like, especially Marxists are like, sex is nothing. And love is what we you know need to be talking about. And also then they get the idea of what love is wrong. But I think that this idea of sex and the, and the, and the power of it, you know, um, I, I can think of side by side, like a, a cannon. I'm, I'm thinking of this image of this cannon that ISIS was using to, or ISIL was using to shoot down helicopters 
and next to it is a cloud buster made by Wilhelm Reich, and they look very similar. And one is, of course, harnessing and using orgone, libidinal energy that's all around us to do something beautiful and make it rain. And one is using brute physical force to attack something else with physical force. And I think that we can see in the Reichian invention the potential and power of sex to not even need any moving parts, but just to understand that aspect of being human, to harness what we are and who we are. And it's also why, in spite of the deluge of pornographic mm-hmm. images, sexual imagery still remains threatening and dangerous to power because it can't be contained even... And so, so what they try to do instead of contain it is dilute it or somehow like super saturate it so it becomes banal. But I think one of the issues with also pornography is that I think there's a difference between pornography as experienced by women and pornography like in gay culture. I think it's much healthier from what I've heard and from what I've heard you talk about on it. That especially because of the, 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 the like hundreds of years of repression of being able to even be openly homosexual and and express your love for who you want to be with in the way you want to be with them and not under any kind of particular ethical overarching you know societies what what it deems is acceptable um i think that's one thing so i think there's something very that has been very explosively freeing and liberating for gay men particularly about pornography and exploring that. I think it's been really damaging for women and especially in the relationships between men and women uh, for heterosexual people because pornography seems to be almost exclusively subjection, subjugation of women and violence against women and you know, eroticized violence is, is all over like Netflix and cinema and stuff. This this connection, even not even in pornography, but just culture is awash with images of sexualized violence against women. And you see this sort of playing out in these like horrific stories with like the police recently, the Met that sort of came up with the various terrible things that police officers have done and sort of over the sort of misogyny that's sort of in there. So I think that the pornography sort of almost reifies a certain imbalance in the relationship between men and women that doesn't actually further the erotic potential that both men and women have in especially in heterosexual which is still like you know obviously what's 95% of the population are heterosexual. So I think they have very radically different meanings depending on what your sexuality is and where it is in the like in its historical moment as well. I think there was a lot of excitement in the 60s and the 70s around sort of the, the sexual liberation and the pill and exploring these sort of ideas that were sort of rebooted from the East, like of Tantra or sort of some of the Taoist sexual techniques were being explored. But they were also happening in, a lot of them were happening in San Francisco in the context that they translated across from gay culture into heterosexual culture as a way to liberate heterosexuals and women, whereas the outcome seems to have been that women's sexuality was equated with gay male sexuality when it isn't quite the same thing. Women's bodies are not understood 
properly and neither is our sexuality. And then this growing realization in the last few years that male sexuality is as little understood as female sexuality. And it's not that patriarchy has been all for the benefit of men and women have been suffering. It's actually that everyone has been suffering under it. And the only people doing well seem to be a few old men who have, you know, used all the power of the world to, to exploit whoever it is they want to exploit, whoever their libido, you know, wills. And that it's everybody else is suffering and there's very little space given for other people to explore fully what they are sexually. And I mean sexually and not like in love, that's another thing entirely, but simply this power inherent in sex. <laughs> there's a lot to take on there. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I certainly, of course, there is a difference between people, gay men in this instance, who uh, struggle much of their lives to be able to say yes to sex mm. and heterosexual women in particular who struggle much of their lives to be able to say no to it. Mm. And so there are boundary, there's distinction in boundary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go looking so much for how how the sort of runoff has been difficult for heterosexuals from gay male sexuality pro mm. proliferating because mm. it would definitely be the reverse that I'd be much more concerned about because mm. gay, gay sexuality is completely informed by um, gay, gay men and lesbian and trans people's sexualities are completely informed by how heterosexuals negotiate dynamics that were essentially set up in the, you know, uh, the 18th and 19th century between the men and women as, who are heterosexual as political struggles, which remain with us mm. now as defining consent, confining, defining and confining um, lust and how sex is meant to play out and, you know, how that relates to power structures, church, state, corporations, that sort of thing. I mean, I think that when we talk about pornography, one, the, the, what I was saying before about the sort of fact that sex spills over everything, which I think includes, um, I think includes most political, social and cultural, well, all of them actually, um, attempts to define it, it will always spill over and it will always be uncontainable by any specific viewpoint, whether that's gendered, um, sexually or sexually oriented, uh, sexually orientated, um, or sort of more directly ideological or political. I don't think any of those things can contain or really approach sex. Um, not really. I mean, the first thing that they have to do is completely neuter it to be able to talk to it because as soon as we move into the sexual center the only language that can actually be used to talk about sex is in a sense pornography maybe not pornography as it's now defined but there's no way to talk or present sex without uh being sexual um otherwise you lose the thing that you're trying to express and so i think that um when it comes to the liberatory power of pornography and even the proliferation of these images, which I hear you as finding, you know, in some ways objectionable, I think that 
what is happening is that we're seeing the faces of of things that we've tried so hard to um, understand or contain in ways that are not useful for understanding or containing what those images are and how they arouse us. There's so much to understand there. I mean, why should even why should even seeing images of sex arouse us is completely a mystery in and of itself before we start talking about why which sexual images arouse us and why and how those have political meaning or weight. That in itself is a mystery and why should, you know, if I'm a man masturbating, watching pornography, a simple repetitive motion combined with an imaginative or perceptual response to something be so literally explosive um, in a bodily, but also imaginal and feeling way. So I think that, you know, there's, there's so much there to go into that I wouldn't necessarily want to approach <laughs> too much of a political conversation around pornography or a, or, or political, but you know what I, I mean? Yeah, Posi- yeah. Posi- positioned in a certain way, mm. but rather simply talk about maybe the liberatory thing, which is happening, which is that part of this proliferation of pornography has to do with the way that people in power are trying to contain sex by supporting the proliferation of something, but it's not, it's still not working. Like, it, it, but it's not the thing itself that's proliferating, and I think that's one of the issues because yeah. um, Peter came across some very interesting research recently, which was what was it? How many men? Peter, you go. You can explain better. Yeah, I can't remember the statistics, but it was the the staggering number of men between the ages of seventeen and thirty five who hadn't had a physical sexual partner in the last year, yeah. two years, and the and this was pre lockdown and. The, the numbers are, are are staggering. I mean, yeah, yeah. So the the number of people who who you'd expect to be having sex has dropped through the floor. Yeah. Um, but but I but see I reject that analysis because this is one of Reich's observations, but also Freud's really ultimately is that you know and and the link is Apanchich does more to express this in her book what is sex than most people i mean sex is everything and everywhere yep. so our decision to engage with it in certain ways at different aspect and different parts um, or different times and different eras will take different forms and right now as with everything the engagement with sex is related to the image is related to what's presented to us. And I think that the fact that people are still engaging with sex and having sex in a certain way, and by having sex, I don't mean sexual intercourse, which has its own distinct... I I wouldn't dismiss that. I wouldn't go so far as to just like completely normalize that away. Well, isn't masturbation sex too? Like, of course they're not the same. Of course they don't have the same qualities. And of course some things bring something, I mean, that the, the sexual intercourse and masturbation and flirting with people or imagining someone sexually, they all are distinct, but they're connected. And I think the engagement with the sexual mystery is still happening in relation to our time and what the challenges of our time present us. How we want to take that forward I think is really up to us and really interesting. And I also don't worry too much about 
a year or two years or even 10 years when it comes to how we engage with things sexually, when we think about the 60s emerging from the 50s, right? And yep. the, the, the 40s emerging from the 30s and so forth, even fluctuating in decades, but then centuries, I think, these kinds of sexual practices and mores emerge in a certain way. So I'm not, I, I don't worry so much about that, to be honest. I think that there's a sexual mystery which people are, you, the, the imagination is pornographic, so you can't, you can't, one, you can't get rid of pornography, but two, you can't get rid of sex and all attempts to try, they might distort or redirect things for a little bit, but there's always, there's always a point at which you can uh, explode, I would say. Sex is our deepest and most strongest drive. So all this kind of looping back to space again, I see it as intrinsically related to how we become the next thing that we become and how we move to the next place that we start finding ourselves inhabiting. I think that's so connected to sex, but I can't even begin to articulate how those things are related. So I'm fascinated. It's Sex is the sacred because it is, although completely intrinsic to our, you know, every aspect of our life is sort of informed somehow by this. I mean, you have your genitals with you all the time. You can be, you can be assailed by an erotic reverie at any moment. I mean, we are, we are completely subject to this force. And I can't see any way that we have a future that we resolve how we become the future ourselves, selves, without sex. And so... Like you, I also, I'm not too worried. I'm concerned for the effect of pornography on people's lives in the present moment, but I'm not worried, again, in terms of the sort of fluctuations between decades or centuries, because I think sex is a constant and it's not going away. And even if half the population become sort of sexually uninterested because the forces of modern life like reduce our energy to so little. I think there are still people who will contain that energy. It seems irrepressible. It's the it's the energy that always awoke me out of any sort of depression. The most the most uh, sort of the, the ashes of the self. It's that energy that brings you up again. So it's the same. Um I think there's something so profound there and it's so hard to grasp how to articulate how these things are connected but the connection between I think a space in some way must be sexual it must be seething with life mm -hmm. and somehow getting off planet seems to be one way that we you know contribute to this seething life of the cosmos um and looping that back again that requires the creation of images, whether that's science fiction or pornography or pornographic science fiction or icons, it's doing the same thing. We're, we're, we're engaged in that same process. 
Yeah, I, well, I love the idea of understanding, of course, of understanding our image making and, and seizing the radical potential of pornography, which has not even been, I mean, not even touched really, like at all. I mean, some people have, have done a bit with it, but I think, you know, going into this question of space and pornography and sex and how these things relate, one way I can think of quite immediately is, you know, like if I'm, if, if someone's, if, so I'll just take me and somebody. So if I'm like fucking somebody really hard or someone's fucking me really hard and it's just like pound, 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 we might, from the outside, someone might say, oh, that's total connection and immersion. But actually what's happening is the expression of a sort of frustration that the person can never be inside me. Even as they're inside me, they're still outside of me. They're not they're not occupying the same space as me, even when they're in my body. They have not permeated me, really. And I'm still outside of them. And so this constant thrusting to get in, and even harder to get in, harder and harder, is expressing at once like a, a lamnuscate. It's, I'm in you, but I am separate from you, but I express my togetherness with you by recognizing totally the separateness. So we are absolutely separate and in that togetherness of us being separate we're together and so i think there's in some ways a, a we could say a, an evocation but we can also say a banishment of the body and the mind at once and an evocation of the body and the mind at once and an occupation of the same space and uh the recognition that we can never occupy the same space so it's this expansion and contraction, negation and positive occupation all at once, again and again and again. And I think there's so much more to it than that. But it's just sort of the first thing that comes to mind is that the evocation and then banishment of contradiction is happening in sex every time we have sex. It happens in masturbation too, but in a different way. But I think um, that's one way in which I could think of it. I think there are two bodies, but there's one consciousness when one is having sex in this sacred sense. And that it's this, it's like a dance. There's, there are two bodies, usually, and they're making particular rhythms and melodies together. There's a, and that, that, the rhythm becomes stronger than the separation. So it's not that there's this frustration, I'm banging on the door trying to get in and I can't get in. This sense of separation is, is, um, isn't because your skin and your boundaries absorb the other and the rhythms play together to form a greater rhythm and link into other rhythms. So you're actually becoming closer to the cosmos in the sense that you're no longer a collection of like limbs and thoughts that are just sort of like scattered around them in this disorganized sense, but one reaches a state of really exquisite coherence where one's self-perception just completely absorbs the other and there's a, a recipro reciprocity and music, musicality that is happening through this process that overrides any sense of separation but is just both are pouring their music into the same cup. And this somehow 
reverberates way beyond you can as an individual or as two separate beings in a space not having sex. But in that sexual thing, you create such a, a light and a field of energy in like just emanating from you that this is um <laughs> it's very very magnetic and attractive it's like a force of nature in itself so um i don't know if you want to add anything to that there's it's just the, the 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 it's it's again quantum coherence it's that both two systems are supercharging each other playing with each other and masturbation is very very effective in getting to know how one's own body works and bringing pleasure to oneself is hugely important and there are like really i mean sex isn't obviously just for reproduction so <laughs> it's um it's clearly about so much more than that even if the you know initial evolutionary impulse was i need to make another of me so i can like keep you know eating <laughs> i need to fuck so i can keep eating and i need to you know and so on it's it's clearly there are excesses of energy attached to what emanates from this it's like a sort of it's it's like something radioactive or so so deeply energetic that it no longer, it, 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 I don't even like to say the word transcends. I don't think it transcends its original purpose because I don't think we can know where any of this is going. But it's clearly the power force that gets us to the next level of, to the next depth even of consciousness as we keep going inwards. But I, the awareness I have developed of my body through this practice with Peter over these years particularly, but I mean, I was experimenting with sex for a long time before I met Peter, as I found that was the thing that like worked for me and that was the thing that always broke me as well. It was always the thing that reconstituted me and the thing that sort of took me off whatever path I had convinced myself was what I was supposed to be doing. The energy is just incredible and what one can achieve with it is not something that it's very easy to sort of put down to just like oh it's an evolutionary mechanism to blah 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 it's um it's sacred in the sense that it's something almost of us but so far from our perception of ourselves that it's like your future self looking back at you i don't know how how to begin mm. to describe yeah, I mean, I think. <laughs> and I, so, I just to just to, to to add to that, I don't think that that has to be heterosexual sex. I think that's that's yeah. the eroticism of sex. That's not like this is going to make a baby sex. This is right. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, ninety nine percent of sex is not reproductive, right? So yeah, like, exactly. Or probably more than that. But I also think. But I also think that like 90, maybe I'll go a little lower, like 97% of sex doesn't have that immersive or that connective quality that you're talking about. Mm. I think that a, a lot of times it does, but I think that, that there's, a, there's a representation of that, that not, definitely mm. not in the way that you're saying it because yours is much more, um, much richer and more nuanced. But there's also this popular culture representation of sex where two people crash into a hotel room and the woman knocks the lamp over and they're fucking and all you see that's are the great too. And, that, right? <laughs> and that's and that it's just completely immersive. And but actually, we 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 think during sex most of the time. I mean, most most sexual encounters 
there's a nervousness, there's mm. a consideration thought, maybe you're thinking about mm. groceries the next day, like whatever mm. things inter- intercede. And I think that, so, you know, in some ways there's this kind of like baseline well, on the, on the one level, there's this sort of baseline where the meeting you're talking about happens. And on the other hand, there's this, a, a huge amount of training that it takes mm. or, or, or practice that it takes to get to what you're talking about. So, uh, I mean, there are two sort of like ends And there. chance as well, I think is a lot to do with the particular um, chemistry that you have with people. Right. Or, or can you, I mean, and I learned this as a sex worker, it's like, can I generate the chemistry with anybody? Like how, how do I actually bring that to, I the, think you can, to the, to yeah. the room? Right. But yeah. I think, I think that, you know, something also that I, I, it was a, it was a really hard thing for me to realize was that this mystery school is inhabited by few people really like that actually on the one hand, everybody has access to it, but that very few people are walking along such a dark path by dark. I mean, unillumined mm. that, that, that the torches are not really in the wall, you know, the hallway yet for, for Saxon. So, while everybody's encountering the mystery, it's mostly not for them to walk and not that they couldn't and not that they shouldn't, but it's mostly that force, that sexual mystery, which can be used, which was used by Christ to heal people, that that same sex was used to put the spit on his hands and heal the the, the eyes, the, the blind person. That, is that happens to everybody, but it gets moved around um, into different aspects of being for most people because mm-hmm. sex is everywhere. It gets picked up and used in different force and presence for mm-hmm. others. And that actually it, treating sex as the mystery it is where mm-hmm. you always learn more from it than you can about it and you follow it and you go through that path. That's rare and it, 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 you're in it, you know, I mean, you mm-hmm. have this mystery and I, I do, although I don't, maybe I've, maybe I've left the kingdom a little bit in a, in, in a different, in a different place <laughs> right traveling. now, but yeah, for fuck's sake. I mean, like, <laughs> like, like for, you know, 43 years of the sex mystery school might've been enough for this incarnation. I don't know, but, um, but I do think that just to say i'm only bringing this up just to say that it might not be that what you're saying is there is actually it is there for everybody but is actually what everybody should no, take up no. and use it i don't I, I i agree with that i don't think i think there's a lot of things you have to do and have arrived at in your life before it becomes possible to pursue that kind of path and a lot of work and and still like for me even on this path and having been on this path for some time now it's still sex is still like a theater of the psyche playing out it's (laughs) playing out even even patterns that I thought I would have overcome and left behind many many years ago which I have like which I've worked through psychologically things which I've worked through psychedelically things which I've worked through in embodied practices things which I've you know repeatedly approached talked through and and left behind again I still find myself you know repeating the same so I find sex is is 
theatrical in that sense. It's very much an arena for forces to play out and to also give your partner the space to play out those forces. And uh, yeah, there's uh, one wears many guises or masks, insects, and even those are part of its sacred nature, I believe. I don't think that you have to be having the the cosmic, you know, coherent sex that I was talking about at first, I think every aspect of that, if one is present, if one is merely just present in sex with one's partner and keyed into them and playing out those those games, those performances, those those psychic dramas, then it's still a form of sacred sex in that sense because one's engaging with the living matter of one's being in, in one of the most direct ways it's possible to and the most sort of profoundly change, changing, transformative ways. And that includes everything like from one night stands and just like sure. all all of that can be absorbed into that sex work too. Yeah, well, I mean, I've fallen in love with a dick coming through a glory hole. I mean, I'm being serious. Like <laughs> I've had a loving experience with this not a quote unquote disembodied penis. Like just like, oh, this is a worship experience here. You know, honestly. Um, wow. So we're, we, we, we really, I was trying to start with space exploration (laughs) (laughs) and now we're talking about a certain kind of space being explored, (laughs) but um, (laughs) a certain kind of void. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Peter, I want to, I want to, I want to take it to you a little bit, um, more here. I told you, (laughs) So I was with Lovelock yesterday and now I'm with you guys today and he worked for JPL and I find this really interesting that it's just for me, but maybe other people are sensing it. The, the, the resurgence of this, I mean, look, if I'm noticing it, other people are noticing it too, that there is the presence of this urge again to contend with space in our spiritual, in a spiritual way. And I just, maybe we can talk about JPL, <laughs> just in Jet Propulsion Laboratory, after everything else we're talking about, it's just fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but maybe we can talk about that a, a, a little bit as well, because it's just this bizarre combination. I mean, even in Dublin, there's a Christian science reading room and in their window, they have a sign that says, to avoid confusion, we have no association with the Church of Scientology. I mean, the <laughs> proliferation to even of, of that event that she's written about often and talked about often, even now has to be like <laughs> people don't want their name confused with the yeah. results of that event. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Um I think we're we're in an age of disclosures. Um, we're, we're in an age of transformation, and I think when we look back in human history at this period, we'll be we'll be more aware of it. We're we're the human beings who are who are sitting on the edge of of that interplant being part of an interplanetary civilization, which is a, a huge psychological leap for us to make. And we're also on the on the edge of transformation, what it means to be human, and what. We'll, what our species is here for. So I think, 
you know, one of the things I was doing when I was returning to um, to the Jack Parsons story, and it's it's great to hear the corroboration from you because I've heard it from other people as well that JPL and these things are coming up for them again, like that it's there psychically active again is i think because we are we are on the verge of another another form of disclosure and that that requires us to to undo a lot of the a lot of the negativity and the poison that's been wrapped up within a lot of it is to do with scientology a lot of it is to do with the way that 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 hubbard's cult was able to capture a lot of the energy of what jack was doing and to take it into another direction um and Jack's work, Jack's work was precisely at this crossroads of sex and space. I mean, every time that they would they would test fire a rocket, then Jack would belt out the hymn to Pan, um, because it's explicit. I mean, firing rockets into space, you know, before Bezos with his mini space penis gets in on the act, firing rockets into space is a sexual thing. It's it's a sexual act, and 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 we we shouldn't be ashamed sexually of our desire to go forth, you know. And I think there there has been a lot of shaming of male sexuality and male desire in the culture. Um, partly that's been necessarily necessary. Partly it's been the renegotiation of the relationship between the sexes. Um, but a lot of it is just outright fucking poison. I I think we we need to we need to as men embrace our sexualities, whatever they are, and to express them without shame because we have a role here. We have something to do, you know, um, and that means both going into space and it means dying. It means putting our lives on the line for the things that we believe in. Um, and Jack absolutely did that. Um, so I think it's very useful when we're looking at a new era that we go back to the birth of the era and the birth of the era was putting man on the moon and we didn't we wouldn't have put man on the moon if jack parsons hadn't produced the the solid rocket fuel which enabled us to do it and that's the fusion it's magic sex science space i mean it's and the imagination and the the science fiction imagination dreaming it and our ability to keep producing these dreams because when we produce them they start to become real yeah well isn't it so interesting too that then with Parsons and Hubbard and Crowley that that you would have this huge celebrity cult right that had sort of spun out of it this this part is so interesting to me I mean obviously there are more celebrities who are in other religions than Scientology right like there, like Catholicism has has way more celebrities than Scientology but Scientology is the celebrity like cult and it's visibly so like oh all these famous people are into this thing and so that also i mean it, the the way it's filtered into the most potent broadcasting tower of culture on the planet which is hollywood is so profound to me 
but I don't exactly know what's going on there, and I'm sure you must have some thoughts on it. Sure. I mean, my 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 interest has been very much in the early story of Hubbard, like the the, the pre-story of Hubbard, rather than modern Scientology. So there there are better sources for modern Scientology than me. But what I can say um, about that is that. Um, David Miscavige, who's the current head of Scientology, he began as Hubbard's cameraman. So he was he was filming Scientology movies. So I think it's the 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 genius of Miscavige to recognise um, the potency of the the image and the um, the use of celebrity in order to garner more power. Because celebrities want an edge, and 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 to be straightforward, the the early training in Dianetics is a form of self empowerment hypnosis. I mean, there, there are techniques in there which work, which is why people get hooked on it. Because you know there are some there are some good things in the early doors until they take all your money and start talking to you about Xenu. Um, so Hubbard as well was hugely taken by star wars so when star wars first played at the movie theaters hubbard was kind of outraged that it wasn't one of his terrible science fiction movies that was doing that which is why he sat down and wrote battlefield earth um which if anyone would like to watch is is perhaps the worst movie ever made um, but if you want to give yourself some cheap thrills, you can you can watch some some breakdowns on YouTube, which will which will save you four hours of misery. Um, but yeah, Scientology Scientology as a cult isn't as a as a current cult isn't really my concern. But um, but they're dying. I mean, my prediction is that 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 particular thing will will end. Um, and one of the thing one of the reasons I wrote this book is to hammer another nail into that coffin. Well, I think I was thinking about Scientology, too, is just, you know, as we're talking about the future, you know, this genuine and and powerful in some ways, uh, although short-lived, as you're saying, religion, you know, pushing forward what we might think of as religion and also in some ways um, revealing to us that religion can't do this anymore for us, that revealing that, you know, no matter how much money how much celebrity, how much image you have around religion, religion can't do for us what it was used to doing in the past, which is creating pathways to different beings, essentially, where we enact the religious rituals to meet those beings. And it can't, it, it can't do that anymore. The revelation is dependent on each and every one of us, which is frightening you know, and, uh, yeah, anyway, I, and so I was just thinking about it in those terms of sort of moving forward and, and how now if you try to create a religion, of course, people would say, well, what are you like L. Ron Hubbard? Like, you know, yeah. it just won't work anymore. So he also served that purpose of, even though in some ways Christianity was the final religion in a way, but you, but you can't have you just can't use religion anymore. He brought about that revelation to modern consciousness, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think it would be great if Hubbard was the seal on the prophets, if he was, he was the last, the last Pied Piper that, um, that the idiots ran after. Um, although I, I am concerned that humans have, have an ability to do this. 
time and time again. <laughs> really? Do you think that there's do you think that there's one I'm missing? Because it seems like I mean, in that case, then we really owe him, you know, a great debt of gratitude if that's what he's done. I mean, as a Judas figure for religion itself, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. Of Antichrist, didn't he? So you can see that kind of feeding into his eschatology. His role, his eschatological role was to bring about the end of all that. It's kind of one of the things he did. Um, yeah, I think Hitler also said that he would do that. that uh, the work that Christ began, I will end, he said. So, I mean, I think that there's not to compare. L. Ron Hubbard and Hitler. I mean, obviously, <laughs> very different figures, very different ways to uh, end and encounter the work of Christ, right? But, but the Hubbard one was actually kind of good. I mean, <laughs> ultimately, I mean, not good for people that were trapped on a boat, um, you know, uh, uh, as uh, whatever, what's it called? Something people. Uh, sea Orc with your billion year contract. Yeah, yeah. But what's it called when you're a, a subversive person or something like yeah, that? A suppressive yeah, person. suppressive person. That's what it is. Scrubbing the, scrubbing the decks of Sea Orc. It can't be good for them. But thanks for the part that they played, you know. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I think we, I think we all need... <laughs> We need cautionary tales. I think it's useful to have those cautionary tales out there. Um, so I think that that just leads me to the broader question, and maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up with the answers to this question, which might not be possible. You know, I think maybe, gosh, it's got to be four, five years ago now, I was talking with Gordon White, about what was happening in the world. And we both sort of agreed, like, actually what's happening is that new forms of spirituality are being born right now. Um, and so this is probably right around the election of Trump, you know, or right before. And um, we, we both saw that happening. And I guess as we talk about, we're talking about these very specific or maybe vague um, theoretical, conceptual practices, concepts, all this kind of stuff that we're going to have to engage with. But what does that new spirituality look like, at least in some of its forms, as we encounter this new, this renewed question, revitalized question of what does it mean to be human and what is this cosmos? I've been thinking about this because of my interest in performance and seeing the failure of organized religions to sustain people spiritually and even as communities. And I think like what you've just said about Scientology is sort of like this shows that that kind of religious spiritual organization I think, I hope, is on the wane. And so with performance, I've tried to look at how one creates a sacred space outside of an, a culture that, or within a culture that doesn't recognize, for example, like the theater as a sacred space. So bringing back those ideas. But I think there's also, 
a necessity to just come together as people in space and that itself, that conspiracy, that breathing together, that recognition, these kind of conversations we're having now in space is the beginnings of what the new spirituality will look like where, for example, and as, as was kind of came, became apparent in our last conversation, in some ways we speak quite different languages spiritually but we can have a conversation. And I think this is really the important thing, like to be now at the space where we can be together in a space and not prejudge each other and have the conversation and to find a way to speak to each other through the words, not just, you know, words against words and kind of preconceived ideas, you know, fully formed. Like when you were talking about Ahriman as being, you know, little units of speech that we repeat and so on, but finding a way to listen to the heart, listen to other people, not just speak at them. And that's the beginnings of how the new spirituality will look, this breathing together, this being in sympathy with each other more, and even recognizing antipathy as an aspect of that, you know. So the sort of competitiveness, the drives against other people, the these hostility, these these forces are also part of a kind of larger sympathy because we are all moving in the same direction and we are all jostling against each other as we try to thrash out what that direction is and where it appears we're going and to describe the journey we're having. So I think there's a there's an element of sort of antagonism at the same time as a sort of a greater movement towards the new. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to say something to that and then I'll let Peter have the final word. I mean, I think that that is, that, you know, for me is a question of, of the blood, you know. Um, when we are developing the blood and the way it circulates forms the contours of the heart and then we have a heart that actually lets the blood flow through in a certain way by drawing it down and then expressing it outward. And I think that for me, people are trying in many ways to live these sort of be in these insular communities where even when they love each other, it's still against others in a, in a very nasty and shitty way where community becomes a thing that becomes ossified and that stops circulation and that stops heart from forming where actually what we need to do instead of having these kind of blood packs with our communities is to puncture ourselves and to bleed ourselves out with each other and let our blood mix together and completely opposed um it's even the metaphor of some sort of racialist or 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 nationalist idea of blood, but rather to meet so that circulation can happen, so that a new heart can form. When we talked last, and you talked about Babylon, and I was talking about Christ, and I was a little nervous about the conversation, to be honest, because I knew about some of our differences. But then I realized, you know, at a certain point, oh, this might be the first time Babylon and Christ are having this long of a conversation, like, in a loving and sustained way. And the same thing here, that the, the, the blood encountering the blood through a puncture, a willingness to puncture and a willingness to bleed in the service of some heart 
that is where it grows from. So that I love what you said and that's how I hear it and report back from it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think it's very lovely, Connor. Um I I differ as an esotericist, so my my overall sense is that there is a requirement for a sense of unity and a sense of what is shared on on both a species basis um, as humans and also in terms of all life, a, a recommitment of a, re, a re-understanding of our relationship to all life and how we are responsible for all life and for the continuation of all life because we're the species that puts all life at risk. So there's, there's a grave responsibility that we carry on our shoulders for that. Um, where I differ slightly is simply that I believe that a lot of the best work is done in small, um, small blood-bonded communities where that unity is shared. Obviously not white separatists living in the woods, you know. Um, but I think that small groups of individuals who are dedicated to the work but still have that sense of open, loving heart and unity directed towards those outside rather than creating rather than creating in and out groups have a great potential to transform things whether that's you know the smallest community of lovers two people or whether that's a larger group of people it doesn't matter because you know for people who are listening to the podcast just for them to be aware that there are there are other people out there who are doing the work and that we aren't alone and that the vast depths of space await us well, thank you so much. I mean, what a pleasure to actually sit together this time um, in front of a fire and uh, have this conversation. Um, and everybody, thank you so much for listening. Here's to looking ahead. Bye now.